Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Mabes. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Captain Ted Lund, and he'll be answering your most important questions on preparing for a fly fishing expedition and fishing for exotic saltwater fish. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Ted a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com, click on the link below the description of the show where it says click here to ask Ted your most important question. We'll receive your questions promptly, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 12 hours after the show ends. If you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Ted Lund about his expedition to Australia. New from Winston Rod for 2007, Boron 2T Rods, new technology, traditional feel. This series combines the feel of our traditional action rods with the lightness and responsiveness of our latest technology. These rods offer the ultimate but delicate presentation while still retaining a good measure of power and reserve. Thanks to the dynamic properties of our Boron 2 technology, these four-piece rods are now available in three through five weight and retail for $625. They are designed and crafted at the Winston Shop in Twin Bridges, Montana, and feature the traditional Winston green finish and Winston unconditional lifetime warranty. Cast the new Winston Boron 2T at the best place possible, your local specialty fly shop. Before we introduce Ted, we'd like to let you know about the great gifts we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we will be giving away a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing in Salt Waters, a premier fly fishing magazine, and two pairs of tickets to one of the International Sportsman's Expositions. So you actually have three chances to win tonight. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, which is at askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Ted's section that says, Click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form. We'll announce the winners at the end of the show. Our guest tonight is Captain Ted Lund. Ted is the editor of Fly Fishing and Saltwaters magazine and a contributing editor for Sport Fishing magazine. He was born and raised in Florida to a family involved in the fishing tackle industry, and he started fishing at two years of age and fly fishing saltwater by age eight. At 16, he was involved in outdoor journalism at Florida Today newspaper. He graduated from the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communication and became a light tackle guide in Key West where he specialized in fly fishing and pursuing world records. This resulted in 31 new IGFA marks for him and his clients. He's also an innovative fly tire and his patterns have accounted for more than 60 IGFA records including the first hammerhead shark ever taken on regulation fly tackle. Ted's writing and photography have appeared in numerous saltwater publications, and he was on the founding masthead of both saltwater fly fishing and fly fishing in saltwaters magazines. In 2003, he was made managing editor for Sport Fishing Magazine, and two years later he was appointed editor of Fly Fishing in Saltwaters. With a background like that, I know Ted Lund has some remarkable experiences. 
and I'm anxious to hear about this latest trip he's made so we can at least vicariously enjoy a faraway piece of the fly fishing world. Ted, welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us tonight. Well, it's good to be here. It's uh, been a little while since I've been on the radio, but I did have uh, had a show of my own as well uh, in the Florida Keys uh, on Clear Channel, so uh, good to be back on the airways. Well, welcome, Ted. And let's kind of give a, the folks an overview. Uh, Ted Lund just came back uh, in, in December, actually, from this expedition to Australia. And what we're going to go through tonight is how this whole thing started, how it, it played out, how it was planned, the fun they had, of course, and, and learn a few things about fishing for, for some of these uh, exotic species, which hopefully we can apply these same techniques back home. So, Ted, let's start at the beginning. Where, where did this idea come from for the expedition? How did it originate? Start us right at the beginning. Well, the, the whole idea for the trip uh, was developed by Hal Chittam, who uh, Hal, a lot of people may remember him, used to have uh, probably one of the premier saltwater fly shops in the world in Isla Morada. Uh, and he also had a shop in Key West. They were called H.T. Chittam and Company. Um, Hal sold the shops, I think, about 10 years ago and then founded the Hell's Bay Boat Works uh, Company, which built some of the finest uh, light tackle and flats boats ever made. And about six or seven years ago, he started fishing in Australia, doing about 30 to 40 days a year, both heavy tackle marlin fishing but also fly fishing for a number of these different species. Uh, one of the things that he fell in love with was the dog-tooth tuna, and that was a primary target for us. The last couple of years down there, he'd been talking to some of the captains about this place. It's actually not in Australia. It comes under their protection, but it's not actually a, a piece of Australia called the Willis Islands, and that's uh, actually where where we went to. It's some 300 miles east of the city of Cairns, actually east of the Great Barrier Reef in the Coral Sea. Um, one of the most remote places I've ever fished. Uh, just really a, a beautiful, beautiful location. So, so he came up with the idea to go over there and invited you along. Is that how it worked? Well, yeah. What Hal has been doing for the last uh, five or six years is he hires a mothership in uh, several game boats and uh, takes people over there with him. And actually, I got invited to go write about it. He had, uh, uh, I believe, six other anglers that uh, you know were were kind of paying customers. Um, and it's, it was quite an expensive trip. I mean, the, the folks that, that paid to go on this trip uh, spent close to $40,000 a piece, uh, even without airfare, um, for three weeks of fishing. So it was a, it was a pretty, uh, pretty expensive effort, but uh, when you sit down and crunch the numbers on it, as remote as it was, and the equipment that you had to work with, it, uh, it was actually kind of reasonable, if, if that's possible. <laughs> Have you ever done a trip of this nature before? Uh, I have fished on motherships never for such an extended period of time, and I actually had to come back early in order to get our, our January-February issue out. Um, the other people fished for 10 days, or actually for three weeks, I'm sorry, and uh, I ended up only getting to fish for about uh, 12 days. So um, it, was, uh, it was a unique experience. Um, really had a great time, phenomenal uh, equipment that we used over there. Um, the mothership that we fished on is a 92-foot uh, vessel called the Boss, and uh, just absolutely first-rate. first, first rate. I mean, they iron your sheets before they, they make the bed in the morning, and um, you come back in, and they've done all your laundry, and all your fishing shirts are pressed, five-star cuisine. 
um, just uh, really a, a first-class experience. Was that, uh, Ted, was that boat designed for fishing trips, or is it used for yeah, other kinds of Yeah, it's actually, uh, Boss is one of the more popular uh, motherships used over there. Actually, what they'll do when they heavy, tack heavy tackle marlin fish on the Great Barrier Reef, um, they usually do that out of cans, and a lot of guys will do day trips where they, they run out from cans and they fish. But a lot of people also fish uh, some of the ribbon reefs and some of these areas like Flinders that, that we had a chance to fish um, that you really do need kind of a, a base station to, to fish off of. And uh, that's where the boss comes in. And I, I think the boat fishes uh, almost four or five months out of the year uh, doing trips like that from, you know, up to from three or four days up to, uh, you know, several weeks at a time. I just got my new issue of uh, Fly Fishing in Saltwaters yesterday, and I could definitely feel your pain as you were <laughs> writing your editorial and having to leave the guys behind who had ten more days of fishing ahead of them. <laughs> it was it was pretty depressing, I, I can tell you. Uh, it was uh, really one of the better trips, and, and I have done some stuff like this before. I've done some exploratory fishing in the Middle East and some other places. It's kind of a daunting effort to go someplace like this that no one's ever really fished before because you don't really know what you're going to find and where you're going to find it uh, you know it's i've fished in the florida keys and in, in key west for almost uh, 25 years now and one of the great things about key west where i fished was the the number of guides and the caliber of fishing and, and the experience that that whole group uh, of captains has there and you go to an area like this, and you just don't have that to fall back on. You really are kind of fishing blind. So uh, it is pretty interesting stuff, and uh, we, we learned quite a bit. And there's talk, actually, uh, about them, uh, you know, repeating the trip next year. So I'm hoping to get back over there. <laughs> I've got a question here that uh, actually has come back from uh, Sydney, Australia. Uh, Stuart Tremaine uh, is just inquiring, what American fly fishermen either want or expect to find in Australia that they can't find uh, elsewhere in the world? Well, there's, you know, there's a couple things. One, just the country itself is is uh, beautiful. I don't know how to describe it other than to say that there is a vibe about the country. The Australian people are, are very uh, fun-loving and very enthusiastic. It reminds me of what the United States must have been like in the post-war years. Uh, like the late 40s or early 50s. I mean, this is a country that's on the rise, that that has a lot going for it. In addition, the amount of water that they have there, and the number of different species. I mean, I I've caught uh, on on conventional and fly tackle while we were there. I think I caught something like 28 different species of fish. Wow. Um, just really incredible, ranging from. Uh, the 350-pound black marlin that I caught on heavy tackle all the way down to uh, a lizard fish that was maybe uh, four and a half inches long. So it's just the, the variety and the total experience is, is uh, really second to none. Well, Ted, uh, one of the things I think people, you, you mentioned how expensive a, a trip like this is, um, and it sounds like it was privately funded. Is that correct? Everybody kind of paid their own way? Is Yeah, the, the, it was actually uh, put together by Hal, and uh, the folks that went uh, were either clients of his or were clients of other guides, and uh, they had the option of bringing their guide along with them. Uh, one of the, the folks that went with us was my good friend Robert Trossett, who is... Uh, 
one of the top guides in the Florida Keys, and uh, he had two two clients that went and paid, so he got to go and fish with them. Uh, John Donnell, who you probably are familiar with from Walker's K Chronicles uh, with Flip Pallet, uh, was another one of the guides that had uh, had a couple of his clients on the trip. And uh, it was really a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of fishing experience. There are two of the anglers that I fished with uh, the whole time we were there. Uh, Buddy Sowers uh, from uh, Richmond, Virginia, is one of the most knowledgeable and skilled light tackle anglers in the world. He uh, holds a number of world records. And another fellow by the name of Michael Schwartz, who's been a friend of mine for quite some time, he uh, from Beverly Hills, California. And, uh, you know, Michael is also a very, very experienced fisherman. So we had a, a pretty good wealth of knowledge there to uh, to try and explore and, and find these different species and figure out how to catch them. Is there a way to actually, I mean, thinking for other people that are listening that would like to do uh, an extended trip, is there a way to, to monetize these trips to maybe get get your money back by by writing or publishing or giving presentations or other ways uh you know it, there probably is and i've actually already started doing some uh some slideshows and such um and we're going to be writing quite a bit about it in the magazine of course we had this editorial this month um there's probably two or three columns that are going to come out of it based on uh, stuff that we learned and developed there and of course there'll be the feature on it but you know the only way that I could really describe this trip and, and talking to Hal about this, he's he's always kind of pushing the edge and trying to find uh, new experiences that are out there that that other people um, necessarily can't go do. And uh, the the only equivalent of this trip that I could think of would be going on a uh, tent safari for six months in Equatorial Africa with Teddy Roosevelt in the early 20th century. I mean, this really was. Um, just about as on the edge as you can get, um, and it's one of the things we were talking with uh, with Buddy Sowers about while we were on the trip. And, and you know, you talk about this great cost and everything. Buddy just kind of looked at me and smiled and, and <laughs> said, "You know, you think about the fishing that we're doing here, and and my kids are coming down on the seaplane that's coming to get you." He said, "How how can you put a price tag on that?" You know, he yeah. said, "This really is a, a once in a lifetime experience that." Uh, it's just, it's just tremendous. It really was. It's phenomenal. Well, are, are there other locations that, uh, uh, you know, for saltwater fly fishing, I guess, in general, that you would regard as potentially being equivalent, or were there other locations that were at least considered? Uh, we, we looked at some other places and actually had to fish a couple of other places uh, inside of Willis, um, on the Great Barrier Reef, just due to weather, there was actually a, a early season cyclone that was was uh, causing some rather unusual weather patterns uh, there. But uh, Australia really is kind of the last frontier, I think, for most saltwater fly fishermen. Of course, places like the Seychelles are uh, are out there, the Marshall Islands, um, Midway. But the thing that really makes Australia unique, particularly that northeast Queensland area, is that you know they've had an established recreational fishing industry there for uh, almost 50 years, and they've got the infrastructure there. They've got motherships like the Boss. They've got uh, these small game boats, which we fished. Uh, we had three of them on the trip, from 34 foot to 43 foot, and 
it really is you need to have that combination of access to the water that we fish, but also have that infrastructure and the equipment there. Um, it, it really is kind of the ideal situation. You just don't have that in some of these other uh, exotic locales. Mm-hmm. But I'm looking at my Australia map here, which is um, pretty good detail from, from when I was over there years ago. And I, I found the Willis Group, and that's where you were at, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is, if, if folks are looking, like um, Ted said, it's almost due east from Cairns, and you pass the Great Barrier Reef quite significantly. Uh, yes. Uh, you're really out in the ocean. Um, where you went now did you fish uh in and around that willis group then or or whereabouts else did you go we did actually we fished right the area uh kind of in the center of that whole group which is willis island there's a a a manned weather station there and uh, we actually anchored up uh, in the lee of the island uh, on the mothership while i was there it took us actually longer to get out there than we thought because of the weather. I mean, the, the first day we could only make it out to Flinders, which is about uh, 70 miles from Cairns, and uh, couldn't travel at night. The weather was so bad, and we ended up kind of, you know, forcing our way out there. And at one point, the boss, which is, you know, 92 feet long, uh, took a, a green wave over the wheelhouse at night while we were uh, while we were underway. So it. Oh. Uh, it was it was some pretty extreme stuff. The weather was uh, not as as good as we had hoped early on, but uh, did kind of calm down and, and let us get out there to Willis. We've got uh, a number of uh, responses to this show from uh, folks down in Australia, and uh, even though you're you're not specifically uh, right in or immediately around Australia, I think some of these questions will apply. Pat Sheridan over in uh, in Victoria, Australia, wonders why Australia doesn't get more recognition for its fisheries, and uh, basically, if there was something in particular that you, that caught your interest uh, in what he regards as the best fishing location in the world. Well, I, you know, I think Australia does get get quite a bit of credit for the fishing that they have there, the, the different species and. And the access to uh, to those species are uh, the thing that impresses me most about Australia is that the the anglers are so innovative and they're so enthusiastic and these guys are going and doing it and uh, you know we haven't seen that really in the United States since the developing days of our sport uh, back in the late 50s and early 60s in South Florida. Um, and I think you're going to see Australia getting getting more and more pressed. You know, the one drawback, if it is a drawback, um, particularly for American anglers, is the length of time that it takes to get there. I mean, it's uh, pretty much essentially a two-day trip by the time you leave the States, especially if you're on the East Coast like I am. You know, by the time you fly to the West Coast and then, and then uh, fly down under, it's it's quite a quite a journey. So that's two days to Cairns, I take it, and then you've got to get to... Out to the, uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, our route, uh, I was fortunate to fly uh, first class on Air New Zealand, or what they call their, their business premier class, and, uh, you know, left on, uh, I believe, Wednesday morning from Orlando, flew out to L.A., spent the day with Michael at his, uh, at his art gallery out there, and uh, left, I think we took off about 7 p.m., 7.30, uh, on Air New Zealand bound for Auckland 
and that's on a 747-400, beautiful airplane. Um, kind of interesting, Air New Zealand, uh, the first time I've ever flown on, on one of these planes, it actually has the lay-down flat seats in first mm-hmm. class. And uh, really a nice flight. You take off out of L.A. about 7.40 uh, at night, and you've got enough time to watch a movie, have a glass of red wine, have a beautiful dinner. The food was absolutely superb on here in New Zealand. And uh, take a sleeping pill, and then you wake up about two hours outside of Auckland, uh, maybe 12 hours later. Have breakfast, land, and uh, spend the day in New Zealand, and get on the plane and fly another six hours in directly into Cannes. So it was uh, really a pretty good, uh, pretty good route for us. Yeah, and when we were talking to Mike McClellan about fly fishing in New Zealand, he pointed out that from the west coast of the United States, you're really not uh, getting too much in the way of jet lag. It's only a few hours difference. It just happens to be the next day. <laughs> so yeah, uh, it's yeah, not like going uh, to Europe or something where you're actually really screwing yourself up quite significantly. But, well, I can tell you it wasn't that bad going, but coming back it was uh, – it, it, It'll take a couple of days uh, to, to get used to it. But, uh, you know, the, the huge difference, particularly flying in first, where uh, in Air New Zealand their, their uh, business and coach class has quite a bit of room, but being in first and being able to, to lay that, that seat down flat and uh, actually be able to sleep makes a huge difference in, in uh, how you feel when you get there. Well, Ted, have you done other fishing in Australia? Yes, I have. This is actually the second time I've been to Australia, and I'm, I'm hoping to get back again next year. I originally fished there about 15 years ago, um, trying to catch baby black marlin on fly, and uh, ended up having some of the worst weather that they've had since World War II. Oh, gosh. And we, uh, we're, I'm hoping next year to go back and try and, and target this, the baby blacks. It's a, it's a pretty unique fishery and the only place in the world that it, that it happens. Well, let's uh, take just a real brief break here. Uh, When we return, we'll be talking more with Captain Ted Lund about his fly fishing excursion east of Australia. This portion of our show is brought to you by the Western Canadian Fly Fishing Exposition. The fifth anniversary Western Canadian Fly Fishing Exposition will be held on February 2nd through the 4th, 2007 at the Max Bell Center in Calgary, Alberta. This is the largest fly fishing specialty show in all of Canada. Featuring, you can attend demonstrations, presentations, seminars, and workshops on subjects as diverse as fly fishing strategies, presentations and techniques, fly tying, and outdoor writing. See the latest equipment, learn casting techniques at the presentation pool, and fly tying methods at the tying theater, and talk to the outfitters and lodge owners. Sponsored by Fly Fusion Magazine, all this and more is waiting for you at the Western Canadian Fly Fishing Exposition, February 2nd through 4th in Calgary. Go to www.flyfishingevents.com, that's www.flyfishingevents.com for more details. See you there. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Ted Lund about his fly fishing expedition style. If you'd like to ask Ted a question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show where it says, Click here to ask Ted your most important question. We'll receive those questions promptly, and we'll be trying to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Uh, Ted, uh, before we uh, get further into this excursion, 
I'm, I'm just wondering, are you uh, involved in any other projects or are there any special uh, goals that your magazine has uh, established here lately? Uh, well, we're, you know, we're uh, just trying to get things going here. This is my first year as editor uh, in fly fishing and saltwaters, and of course we've got a, a pretty big reputation to uphold, and that's something that uh, really has taken a lot of my time over the last year. Um, between traveling and, and just trying to put out the best um, magazine on the market dealing with uh, fly fishing in the marine environment. But one of my, my favorite uh, things to get involved in, of course, I love the tournament fish and am uh, heavily involved with the Redbone Tournament Series, um, not only in the Florida Keys, but, but they're at large events, and those benefit uh, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation uh, in the United States. And I think they've raised over five million dollars for cystic fibrosis over the last uh, 20 years so that's uh that's kind of one of my pet projects and something that i really enjoy uh doing and it, it lets people get out and enjoy our sport but also uh you know help a worthy cause but ted before we get into planning of this trip just one more question about kind of australia in general i'm sure you've run articles on other types of fishing, and you said you had fished there before. Can you give us kind of a, a just a general overview of the opportunities uh, for fly fishing in Australia? Well, you've got a, you have a couple of different fisheries that you can take advantage of there that I'm familiar with. There may be more, but uh, the ones that I think American anglers would probably want to go go target. Uh, you have the offshore fishery, which is what we did uh, on this trip. You've got your traditional offshore species like sailfish, marlin. Yellowfin tuna, um, long-tail tuna, um, all the reef fish, the trevallies, the, uh, the coral trout, a uh, number of different species of reef fish like that. Then you've got kind of an inshore fishery where you fish for barramundi, and they range anywhere from, uh, you know, the freshwater billabongs all the way out into the brackswater estuaries uh, and down onto the coast. Um, another fish called a... a uh, King Threadfin, which is a really an, an odd-looking fish. Uh, if you go on the internet and Google them, uh, they're kind of like a cross between a, a a sea robin and a ladyfish, I guess you could say. Hmm. Um, and a number of different trevallies in shore. The golden trevallies, as opposed to the giant trevallies, which we found uh, uh, offshore on the reef. Uh, some other inshore fish, the ceratogs. Uh, which are very similar to a fish called the arowana, which is actually uh, found in the Amazon. And these things live in uh, in some of the brackish water areas there. They also have flats fishing. You know, we caught, uh, did manage to catch uh, some palmitas or snub-nosed darts there, which are like uh, juvenile pump or juvenile permit actually, uh, up to about maybe two pounds. Um, but they do have some larger ones. Uh, there's a fish called a common dart, which is very similar to our permit. They grow to be like 35 pounds. Um, they do have bonefish. We saw some. We we did not catch them, but uh, definitely with all the bonefish guys we had them on the boat with us, we had definite confirmed sightings of bonefish on some of the shallow water flats. And they also have a fish called an oxeye herring, which is a, a, a miniature burpin. They grew up to be about 10 pounds, and uh, just a tremendous number of different species to fish for that, that you really can't catch anywhere else in the world. Well, in terms of the uh, either offshore or maybe near shore uh, fishing around the circumference of Australia, is there a lot of variety 
you don't have reefs uh, probably on some of the some of the coasts. Uh, does it vary a lot? Uh, there, there's a tremendous amount of variety. Um, you know, up on the northern the coast, uh, you've got a lot of mangrove estuary. Um, you do have a lot of reefs in, in addition to the Great Barrier Reef. Um, you know, a lot of coral head environments. Very, very similar to Florida, really, uh, in a lot of aspects. Um, river mouths, channels, things like that. And then along the southern coast, where the water starts to cool, you've got a lot of, uh, you know, steep, rocky cliffs and, and such. So it's a pretty varied environment there. Yeah, I think what people have to realize if they haven't been there is that the east coast of Australia, and just talking about the East Coast, um, is like the East Coast of the United States, only in reverse. You've got cold water at the bottom and then warm water at the mm -hmm. top. And actually, when you get down there to Tasmania, you've, you've got some good brown trout fishing inland. Uh, so, oh, yeah, tremendous, tremendous trout fishing. Yeah, uh, so it's, uh, it's such a diverse area that it's really hard to even make a dent in it. But let's, let's try to make a dent in it here tonight. <laughs> what, yeah. um, where did you start with planning? What did you have to do to, to get ready for this trip? Well, you know, we had a pretty good idea. Hal has been doing similar trips uh, to this for the last five or six years and doing 30 or 40 days down there. And uh, really the last two years has specifically been targeting uh, dogtooth tuna and wahoo. So we kind of knew what the, the primary species were we were going to fish for. Um, but you start talking about three weeks of being on a, on a mothership in the middle of nowhere with no way to get stuff in and out, then you've got to start thinking in terms of, you know, how many flies are we going to be losing? Uh, how many tippets are we going to have to buy? How many fly rods are we going to need? You know, for the different species that you have, how many different outfits are we going to need? I ended up bringing something like 20, I think I, my final count was I had 23 complete fly outfits with me. Holy um, smokes. Ranging anywhere from six weights, fishing light tippets uh, for world records, all the way up to uh, 16 weights, um, you know, for a larger fish. And between myself, Robert Trossett, and uh, Buddy Sowers, and Michael Schwartz, the four of us, I would suspect that we probably had close to about 700 pounds worth of fishing tackle. Um, Let me I was very fortunate. Let, let yep. me interrupt you just for a second. Folks, if you want to see a, an array of that, go to uh, Ted's speakers page on our site where it says more about Ted Lund, and you'll, you'll see an array of rods there that he's talking about. Go ahead, Ted. Yeah, and we, we didn't just bring, uh, you know, fly tackle. That's, that's something that I, I really like to stress to listeners. You know, you go on a trip like this or you go to the Seychelles, you go to Christmas Island, you fly halfway around the world, you get there, and all of a sudden the fly fishing is not happening and the conditions aren't conducive. So then what do you do? And that's one of the, the, the advantages that we had on this trip. In addition to the 23 fly outfits we had, uh, or that I had, we had uh, standard trolling rods. We had light spinning rods. We had medium spinning rods, plug casting rods deep jigging outfit so that you really could adapt and take advantage of the fishing that was there uh, and fly fish whenever conditions permitted so um, you know rather than sitting on the on the mothership reading a book you could actually be out fishing and, and taking advantage of uh, what the area had to offer but you know I had probably 30 pounds of flies really this this stuff 
and, and help from manufacturers. I mean, I cannot say enough about uh, the support that I receive from people like Enrico Puglisi and uh, Troy Bachman at Fly H2O and, and uh, uh, you know, Ted Jurassic at Tebelver and the folks at Sage and Winston and Loomis and everybody else, Rio, 3M Scientific Anglers, really came together for me and, and helped me have the best equipment available in our in our sport, uh, you know, to use out there on the on the cutting edge. And what's frightening is this stuff started showing up uh, a little bit after the fly tackle dealer show, and uh, I had it kind of masked in my living room so I could start uh, uh, trying to inventory what I had and trying to figure out what else I needed. And, and uh, it started to look like I was going to need a bigger apartment. There was so much of this stuff. <laughs> Um, and what's scary is, you know, the fishing was good while we were there. It wasn't what we expected, and it wasn't what we were prepared for in terms of the amount of tackle, in that we had way more than what we would have needed. But I, once the weather, once the weather calmed down, I got to see three days of what the fishing should have been like. And the frightening thing is, is that as much stuff as we had, if I had gotten ten days of that kind of fishing. I would have. I probably would have run out. It, it's very conceivable that I would have run out of fly lines. It's very conceivable that I would have run out of flies. Um, you know, Hal on some days he was fishing eight pound tippet and he'd go through twenty or twenty five flies in one day. And uh, some of these flies, you'll see when the, when the feature comes out on this. I mean, some of these flies are are seventeen, eighteen inches long. I mean, they're they're pretty imposing looking patterns um, and uh, it's just it's incredible how the fish eat these things up the dog tooths come up and, and slam these giant flies they eat them they go straight down into the reef and then take off on a blistering horizontal run across the bottom and it's conceivable you make one cast and hook a fish and lose everything fly line whole thing gone wow <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty rugged stuff huh. Well, I have a question uh, here from uh, John Muslin in uh, Torrance, California, who uh, I think realistically speaking we can expect that uh, most folks are uh, planning a little bit more pedestrian uh, trip than you had, but mm-hmm. he's wondering how how they make uh, contact uh, to look for the best spots, what kind of fishing, uh, guide services, is the local chamber of commerce uh, uh, in some of the cities uh, on the east coast of Australia? Actually, what I would do, uh, you know, if if I were trying to plan a trip to Australia, I would look at a couple of things. One is I would go to our website, flyfishandsalt.com, and check that out. We've got a number of different different operators that uh, that work out of Australia that uh, the media list and that we recommend. And uh, I'd also just talk to people, you know, real real good source is uh you know dan blanton's uh web forum he's got a number of people including rod harrison who is rod is kind of like the lefty cray of australia mm-hmm. and uh you know is is constantly posting on there and, and a real real good way to to uh you know to get dialed in there and, and find out how to go um also talk to some outfitters um folks like yellow dog uh, fly fishing here in the united states and even frontiers travel um, does quite a bit of uh, stuff over there and, and, and can help you out with that.
Ted, you did go over there. You said targeting specific fish. What, what were the ones that you were uh, targeting, and and how did did you know specific flies for those fish before you went? Our primary target was the dogtooth tuna, um, also wahoo. We knew there were going to be some billfish there, sailfish, um, possibly some fly rottable size black marlin. But we also knew that there were going to be. Um, you know, a tremendous number of reef species, coral trout, which are like our grouper, several different species of trevally, all different kinds of uh, of snapper and porgies and stuff that would eat flies. And Hal has a system that he uses for the, the dog-tooth tunas, which involves large poppers. So we were able to plan, you know, around that and having some large billfish-type flies. Uh, stuff like that, but what I had the best luck with were some large streamers. Uh, some of Enrico uh, Puglisi's tube flies worked very well for us. Uh, he had uh, also sent me some of his peacock flies, which are very, very interesting. They have a, you know, they're about a six or an eight inch long uh, Puglisi material streamer that has a red tail tied onto it that's on a, a stiff piece of mono. So this fly actually kind of wiggles in the water with this little red tail uh, swimming behind it. Very, very effective. Number of other uh, number of other patterns that work well for me that I pretty much take everywhere I go. Um, you know, standard deceiver patterns, clouds or minnows, uh, varying sizes, and probably the most productive fly I've ever used anywhere in the world. You know, the half and half, which is a kind of a, a combination of a clouds or minnow and, and a lefty's deceiver. Um, but that's uh, you know, those are, are pretty much go-to patterns anywhere in the world, and it's kind of the, the stuff that we relied on down there. Just in terms of the, the planning aspect of this whole thing, is there uh, are, are there particular times of the year when one should uh, target his his trips uh, to go? Yeah, you know, the, the best fishing generally uh, occurs in that, that northeast Queensland area around Cairns from about September to uh, the first part of December. It's generally the best weather. It's kind of like our spring. Uh, it'd be very, very similar to going to, uh, you know, the Florida Keys during March, April, May. Um, you can expect a lot of the same weather and a lot of the same fishing conditions. That, that's probably when I would shoot for for uh, for that type of fishing. What happens if the weather does bite you and you you cannot fish? What? Uh, well, that's what uh, that's actually what happened to us uh, the first couple days we were there, and, and that's one of those situations where I talk about uh, you know kind of taking advantage of, of whatever gets thrown at you and. Uh, you know, the two guys who were with us the first day, it was very, very rough. We got out to Flinders Reef. It was about uh, probably 2 o'clock in the afternoon before we got to go fishing. And it was rough. I mean, it was not fun. It was hard to stand up in the boat. And uh, we're trolling, trying to tease fish up and, and uh, throw flies at them. And it was just really, really rugged. And, uh, you know, the two other guys that were with uh, with us actually ended up getting sick and wanted to go back to the mothership. And we're sitting there with probably, you know, two and a half more hours to go. And I looked at, at my friend Bob Trossett, and they said, you know, we're best friends. We're on the Great Barrier Reef in November. The black marlin bite is going off. I'm not going to go back and sit on the mothership. And he said, no, you're absolutely right. He said, let's go marlin fishing. So we, we got out the 130 bent butts and... Uh, Went 
in in uh, dead baited black marlin for an hour and a half and had what I would consider to be probably the most insane bite in, in the sport. That you know, in an hour and a half, we had three fish on. I caught one 350, lost another one probably 300, and uh, RT had one on over 700 pounds for about 15 minutes before we pulled the hook on it. And you know, to be in a place like that with a fishery like that when it's going off, you know, I think a lot of people tend to look down their nose at heavy tackle. But when you have a Ben Butt 130 outfit that weighs so much that you can barely even lift it out of the gunnel to get it to the chair, and you could take the line and wrap it three times around your hand and, and try and pull line off the drag, and you can't even can't even budge it. And then all of a sudden you're hooked to something that is ripping line off here like it's attached to the back of a Mack truck. It's a, it's a pretty awesome experience. You know, it's, it's something that people should do. And, and, you know, I tell folks they have to go to Panama. I spent last Christmas at the, or Christmas before at Tropic Star Lodge in Panama fly fishing for big dolphins. And uh, it's one of the best places in the world to catch black marlin. And I tell people, if you're going to go there and you're going to go fly fishing, take a day or two out of your week and go catch a black marlin on heavy tackle because there aren't very many places you can do it. And it really is the pinnacle of fishing is to catch one of these majestic creatures and release it. I mean, there it's there's nothing like it. And I think everybody should give it a try. It may not be for them, but at least you can say you did it. Well, that sounds like some pretty good advice. Uh, let's take a, a quick break here. Uh, when we return, uh, Ted Lund will be answering more of your questions about these exotic saltwater fish. Lefty Cray, Dave Whitlock, Bob Clouser, Gary Borger, Jack Dennis, all of these and more fly fishing greats have been involved in the International Sportsman's Expositions over the past 30 years. Each of the five ISC events is the market's largest sport, sportsman's event all year, featuring up to 600 exhibitors, hundreds of seminars, and special events, including ISC's own Best of the West Distance Casting Contest and the new Iron Fly Tying Contest. Visit www.sportsexpos.com for seminar schedules and more information. Come meet the legends and those who soon may be at ISC events in California, Colorado, Arizona, and Utah. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Ted Lund about fly fishing the Great Barrier Reef and the Coral Sea around Australia. If you'd like to ask Ted a question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com, click on the link below the description of the show where it says click here to ask Ted your most important question. We'll receive those questions promptly, and we're trying to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Okay, well, uh, it probably is time to move on to a uh, uh, discussion about some of the fish. You've talked about the dog-tooth tuna, and I have a question here from Jim Ware in uh, Mill Creek, Washington, who wonders how the dog-tooth compares to the long-tail tuna, which he has experience with. The long-tail tuna is very, very similar to our blackfin tuna in, uh, that we catch in, in Florida. Uh, we do quite a bit of fly fishing for them. They get up to about 35 pounds. The interesting thing about the the long tail is it's much more of an inshore fish um, than the blackfin, and even more so than the, the dog tooth tuna. It's more of what I would consider like a little tiny that, or a, a false albacore that lives um, 
kind of inshore, doesn't really range offshore, is not one of these big far ranging pelagics. But the dog tooth tuna, uh, even the smaller fish uh, like we caught, is absolutely the hardest fighting game fish I've ever fished for. They, they just have an explosive strike, um, they're, they have big nasty teeth. They have a tail that the only fish that I've ever seen that, that has a tail similar to it is a broadbill swordfish. And I'd have to rank them as one of the, the great all-time big game fish. Um, just blistering runs. I mean, we had uh, a couple of large fish, over 100 pounds, that uh, would come up, eat the fly, and have half of a T-bore Pacific, which holds 1,500 yards of 50-pound braid off the reel so fast you couldn't even get the boat in reverse to go after them. Um, wow. It really is an, an underrated game fish, and I think one that is going to receive a lot more attention here uh, in the next five years. And it's a fish that's not uh, really available anywhere but, uh, but Australia? Uh, Australia, I think, is probably the best place you could go fish for them. They are found throughout the Indo-Pacific um, region anywhere from uh, Christmas Island to Midway uh, all the way down around to the Seychelles. But the biggest fish really are caught in Australia. We had two fish on the trip caught on heavy tackle um, while we were exploring and kind of trolling looking for fish. Um, I caught one that weighed 93 pounds on 50 pounds. That for you to say that you had a 50-pound stand-up outfit and you felt like you were undergunned, it would be a fair statement. Uh, and my friend uh, Tross at the same, actually at the same time, hooked up on a different boat to a fish that turned out to be the new 30-pound world record that weighed 178 pounds. Um, just massive, massive fish. And very good eating, too, I might add. They're, uh, they're, they're an awesome fish and, and great, great fun on a fly rod. You know, Hal has caught a couple of fish over 100 pounds. Having having caught one of those fish on heavy tackle, I have to say that his uh, his 16 pound record, which I think is 140 some pounds, might be one of the greatest catches ever made on a on a fly rod in saltwater. Well, you know we we always hear a lot about sharks when we hear about anything uh, referring to the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, uh, were they uh, were a common presence for you? There are quite a few sharks there. I never did see anything big. The biggest shark that we saw was uh, probably six or seven feet long. Never did see any hammerheads or tigers or, you know, any of, any of the exotic kind of fish. It's very similar to fishing offshore in the Bahamas where you just have to know that there are sharks and that you're going to have to deal with them. And you really kind of fish through the sharks knowing that you are going to lose some fish or you are going to have some bite-offs. Um, but I'd say all in all, I you know, they weren't, they weren't as ferocious as what uh, as what people would lead you to believe. So when you say bite-offs, you're talking about while you're fighting a fish, uh, a shark attacking the, the fish you're fighting? Yeah, yeah, and you, you'll get quite a few fish back that are, are you know, have a chunk out of them, or uh, you'll actually lose, lose quite a few fish where they just get eaten, but... Uh, you know, it, it's kind of a numbers game. You just have to go into it with that mindset that, you know, I'm going to have to to uh, go through two or three fish before I get one. And uh, you just kind of deal with it. I mean, it's it's actually nice to go somewhere. We, we've managed to beat sharks into submission in the Atlantic Ocean. It's nice to go somewhere that, you know, you actually find them. 
and, mm. uh, and can see them. What uh, can you tell us about the dentition on the dog tooth uh, tuna? I, I see the picture on your your uh, page on our website that uh, looks pretty impressive. Uh, how do how do those uh, teeth deal with the tackle that you're throwing at them? That's the 178 pound fish. That's a close up of that fish's mouth. And you know, you look at this fish. I, I'm had a chance to show some of these photos to uh, Diana Rudolph, who's been on your show, and, and Diana's got a, a pretty good background in in, uh, in ichthyology and in, in fishery science. And we had a 50 pounder that we caught on a plug on a it was similar to a Apollo that you know it's like maybe 12 inches long. They had three A dot triple strength hooks on it mm-hmm. and a big lip. And we caught this 51-pounder and went to remove the plug from this fish's mouth, and all you could see was the wire going straight down into its gullet. So it somehow completely inhaled this giant plug with all these hooks on it all the way down into its stomach, literally. And the plug was inside the fish. And we started looking at this photo, and she's going, this is interesting. Look at these teeth. Because the teeth are are they're conical shaped and they're almost like you would what you would see on a dinosaur. I mean, these look like teeth on a Velociraptor, mm-hmm. and they curve back in. You know, they're not straight, but they're kind of like recurved to hold things in. And then you start looking at the gills, and the gill rakers <clears throat> on most fish. You know, the, the rakers point backwards and. They're designed so that when the fish flares its gills, you know, if, it, if it's got something in its mouth, it can expel it. And if you look at these fish, they actually have spines on the the front gill raker that face forward. So that if this fish eats something and it flares its, its gills, the chunks don't escape. Right. I mean, they're really a very, very primitive, prehistoric <laughs> dinosaur killing machine looking thing it's just one of the coolest fish that uh, that, that I've ever encountered um, got to use wire that was one of the, the interesting things to me about Australia uh, in general that you know in, in the states we're used to fishing for syrup mackerel and kingfish and, and uh, even on our sharks some of these other fish you know we'll use lighter wire I use a lot of, of uh, 40 pound wire um, some 60-pound wire, but very, very rarely would I ever go above that 60-pound mark. And over there, I mean, they're using 110 pounds. They, they don't care. They, they, it's refreshing to go someplace that you can use the heaviest wire and not even think about fish refusing it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like you're using uh, these little tiny, you know, 16x tippets and, and, and small stuff. I mean, it's it's. Uh, you got to use some pretty serious terminal tackle for them. Wow. Well, t- tell us a little bit more about uh, the kind of tackle that, that you use there, and, and you know what, what you took over in the way of a fly rod, and what, what your setup was for these dog tooth. Well, for the you know pretty much run of the mill stuff, you were looking at a 12 weight to a 16 weight, um, and anywhere from a. Uh, uh, Think of a, a reel in the size of the Tibor Gulfstream to the Tibor Pacific, um, somewhere in there, but holding a, quite a bit of backing, 800 to 1600 yards of backing. Um, Hal, that was one of the things that he kind of has figured out about these fish. 
you know, most people would lock the drag up on 20-pound tippet or 16-pound tippet and really try and stop these fish from getting into the reef. And his his philosophy, which actually works very well for him, is the opposite, where you actually back off on the drag and let the fish run and let them get out over the edge and don't try and stop them because if you try and stop them, they're going to take you into the reef every time. But if you just kind of get the fish clear and let them run, um, you've got a pretty good chance if they get off that edge and get away from the sharks, which is another key thing, you've got a pretty good chance of, uh, of landing them. So uh, pretty much, you know, a 12 weight, 12 weight to 16 weight, depending on the size of the fish. And that's, that's a pretty standard offshore outfit for me. And when I was guiding, I very rarely um, had anglers fish with anything smaller than a 12 because invariably, when you've got the light rod out, something will swim up that you can't catch on. <laughs> you know, if you've got an 8 weight or a 10 weight. Um, but we did a lot with the 10s and, and uh, a lot with the 8s, you know, fishing around the reefs. Um, quite a few sinking lines. I really am a big believer in a, you know, like a 450 grain uh, density compensated integrated uh, sinking headline. Uh, fished a lot of those, both from Rio and 3M. Um, but also had a lot of a lot of floating lines and a lot of uh, you know like the slide the slide tip lines that are a, a clear intermediate tip line just to to be able to adapt to whatever situations we we might encounter. We've got uh, several questions regarding the the terminal gear. Uh, John French down in Southern California is asking about uh, the types of leaders, and I, I guess one question would be if you're targeting different species, you must uh, use different uh, terminal gear. We do. Um, generally, I would, I like to use a loop-to-loop -loop leader system with about a six-foot butt um, attached to the fly line with a surgeon's knot looped into the end of it, and then pretty much a standard uh, three-foot class tippet with bimini's on both ends, surgeon's knot in one end and then either wire or fluorocarbon on the other um, attached to the fly. On the wire, the wire outfits, I like to use um, Malin's uh, single-strand wire, which, which is a hard wire. You have to use an um, uh, all-bite special to the class tippet. And then you need to be sure to, to break the ends off. You know, with, a lot of guys aren't familiar with rigging with hard wire. And if you actually trim it with a pair of clippers, it leaves a very, very short tag end, which if your guide or if you happen to grab it and try and pull the fish to you, can actually lay your hand open. And I, I have a very good friend of mine who lost the use of his middle finger um, because it actually sliced the tendons um, in on his hand, in his finger. So you want to make sure that you, you are able to, uh, you know, twist and break the ends off and then use a haywire twist on... The uh, on the terminal end going to the fly again, making sure to to break that off. Pretty much my rule of thumb over there, um, unless it's a billfish or a trevally or something like that uh, that doesn't have teeth, I'm generally going to be using wire uh, because there just are a lot of nasty creatures over there that will uh, you know that will cut through fluorocarbon. Sure. And, and as you said, they're not they're not shy of that, so that's that's not an issue. Uh, no, and, and actually, you know, I'm a big fan of fluorocarbon, and I generally don't put anything in the water unless it it is attached to fluorocarbon. 
but I don't think it really makes it, over there. I don't really think it makes a difference. I mean, you can probably get away with using, you know, eighty or hundred pound hard mono uh, for bite tippets, and I, you would probably be fine. But definitely on the dog tooths, you you do need wire. Well, now, what other you you mentioned that there's a whole host of species out there. What other species did you target, and what determined uh, the decision for that? Uh, given opportunity. Well, generally, if you're you're trolling and bait and switching, uh, you are going to have shots, at, and you're fishing edges and points on the reef. <clears throat> you've got uh, chances at sailfish. You've got chances at black marlin. You've got chances at wahoos. Uh, maybe yellowfin tunas. Um, we did not see any big eyes, but but they do get big eye tunas there. So you're probably going to have a couple of different rods ready when you're doing that. You're going to have one with wire. You're going to have one with mono. If uh, you know if the captain calls it as a billfish or a, a big eye tuna or a yellowfin tuna, you're going to go for the rod that's rigged with the mono. You know if he calls it a toothy creature, you're obviously going to go with uh, with the wire. Now, casting on the reefs, which is a totally different thing, that was kind of interesting, uh, casting over the coral heads that range anywhere from, you know, might be, might be 40 feet deep and it might come up to three or feet from the surface, uh, you're going to be throwing and actually blind casting uh, or teasing fish with, uh, you know, somebody with a, a chugger on a spinning rod, teasing fish up, getting them to hit that, and then throwing the fly right in behind it. Um, you know, it just depended on what we wanted to do that day. And I actually had a chance to to do some of that fishing in the shallows uh, out of out of one of the skiffs on the boat rather than fishing out of the game boats. And that was really some exciting fishing. Um, pretty depressing because you don't have much of a chance to land anything. You know, you make a 40 or 50-foot cast, you're in 30 feet of water. The fish eats the fly at the end of the cast and goes directly down into the rocks. And, you know, it's a short-lived battle. But... Uh, you do win them occasionally, you know. Like I was saying earlier, it is a numbers game, and you just have to keep at it. And, and eventually, you're going to get one that makes a bad decision, and uh, it could end up being the fish of a lifetime. I mean, some of these coral trout are just so beautiful. There's there's a fish called a luna cod or a coronation bass that I caught over there that uh, we'll have pictures of in the magazine. That is the most colorful fish I've ever seen. And it's the only fish I've ever seen that it, it's it's bright red with purple spots and, and, and uh, chartreuse halos around the spots. It's the only fish I've ever seen that is the same color five hours after it's dead as it is when it comes out of the water. Hmm. Now they the do not lose their color. Phenomenal eating, and when they actually when they when they uh, go to clean the fish because it does retain its color like that. They simply gut the fish rather than flaying it, and they cook it whole. It was very, very, uh, very interesting stuff over there. Now, the fish that uh, the, the orange fish that we put on your page on your speaker's page. What kind of fish was that? That is a snapper. They they call that fish a red bass over there. Mm. And these fish are everywhere. They come up and they smash topwater lures in forty and fifty feet of water. <coughs> and it's funny because the Australians hate them. Because you can't eat them, they they have ciguatera, which is a, a cumulative neurotoxin that you know is one of the apex predators in that reef environment. 
they eat a lot of these smaller fish that that are eating um, this zooplankton that causes um, causes this this illness. That's the same thing we have a problem with in the Caribbean with the barracuda, right? Yes, absolutely, okay. absolutely, same thing. And uh, so consequently, they hate these fish because you know they can't eat them, but they are a fantastic game fish. I mean, they're just strong fighting, very very smart, very selective. Um, can be tough to fool. You know, you might get to a spot that that has a large school of them in, on a coral head, and you might hook one or two, and then you'll never catch another one. So you have to move on. Well, um, they, they get very very smart. That's certainly a so, very pretty fish too. Uh, tell you, uh, yeah. gorgeous. I mean, the colors on them, and they they range from a a uh, uh, dark red, almost maroon color, to that that bright orange that uh, that you see in that photo. Well, Ted, we need to take another break here, um, and when we come back, uh, Ted will be answering more of the questions about fly fishing for many of these ocean-going predators down under. The Federation of Fly Fishers is offering a special seminar series at the fly fishing shows which are taking place around the country. Entitled, From Beginner to Expert, the Federation of Fly Fishers Classic Reference Series, this seminar not only offers expert instruction, but the nominal $25 fee also includes a one-year membership to the Federation. This is an incredible bargain. The Fly Fishing Show and the Federation Seminar will be in Marlboro, Massachusetts, January 19th through 21st, Somerset, New Jersey, January 26th through 28th, and Charlotte, North Carolina, February 2nd through 4th. And you can see other dates on the website, www.flyfishingshow.com. Don't miss these outstanding fly fishing shows and take advantage of the Federation Seminar. Tell your friends and bring along some newcomers. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Ted Lund about fly fishing off the coast of Australia. If you'd like to ask Ted a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show that says, Click here to ask Ted your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them on the show tonight as possible. Well, Ted, um, could you walk through, um, well, I guess it's kind of two-part, when you started out a day there, did, did you go after a particular fish, and, and what, what was the, the plan? I mean, or, or were you always trolling and teasing um, and, and hope to, to just bring something up? No, we tried to mix it up a little bit so that it was different. <clears throat> you know, it was, it was different every day, and I tried to actually get together and fish with some different people that, that wanted to go do different stuff. So it all all really depended on where we were, what the weather conditions were, and what what you wanted to do that day. If you wanted to go after the dog tooth uh, tuna, and could you kind of walk us through the procedure step by step? There's many people that have never fished or teased, you know, fish up in that manner for fly fishing. Sure. Could you walk us through that? Sure. It's pretty much a, a standard bait and switch technique um, that was developed by Webb Robinson and Lefty Regan in the late 1940s. Uh, same thing you do for sailfish, and that's what they originally did, where you've got, if the caster is right-handed, you have the left outrigger out. You're running three teasers, uh, two off the outrigger, one off the flat line. The captain is in control of the uh, of the two off the outrigger, 
and the mate is in charge of the one that's that's off the flat line. So you get a fish up, comes up and hits one of the three, and you're hoping to eventually transition that fish over to the teaser rod that the mate has. Okay, so that fish comes up, hits that hits that teaser, and the mate goes ahead and yanks the teaser out. The captain at the same time removes or takes the boat out of out of gear, so the boat is in neutral, and that's a requirement for uh, uh, the International Game Fish Association is that the cast be made when the boat is out of gear. Um, when they do that, you go ahead and make your cast back there and start stripping the fly, usually with a popper, you know, trying to do it pretty violently to uh, to to cause the fish to to uh, react and hit it. And uh, you either get the bite or you don't. If you don't get the bite, then you put the boat back in gear, get the teasers back out, hopefully get the fish back around and uh, and get them on. That's basically it. It's a, it's a pretty standard uh, pretty standard technique. Well, it really sounds like a team effort there to, to be successful. Oh, totally, totally team effort, and the, the captain and crew are as, as big a part of it as uh, really as the angler is. In terms of the, the gear that you had along, we know you brought a, a bus load. Uh, is there anything you forgot or that you wish you had along? You know, ironically, I would have to say no. <laughs> uh, between the between the 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 four of us that were in my group that that kind of fished together, we all pretty much had what we needed, and uh, uh, you know we we were able to fill in some gaps. Um, there. I think we were actually pretty well prepared. This is probably the first trip that I've ever been on that, you know, I came back at the end of the and end of the trip and said, you know, we there really wasn't anything that we needed. We we kinda had everything that, that uh that we needed on the trip. So if you were someone making a, a trip down there and not anticipating quite as extensive a trip as you uh experienced, uh what what weight outfits and what equipment would you encourage them to bring along kind of as a backbone? I've got a question from Phil Pankow in Minnesota about that. I would take, I'd take an eight-weight, pretty much the same stuff that I travel with anywhere I go. You know, obviously if I'm going on a, on a flats fishing trip and I know I'm going to be fishing for lighter species, I'm probably going to have more of the stuff in the lighter range. Or if I'm going on an offshore trip, I know that I'm going to kind of, you know, uh, load up on the heavy end. Um, I'd have at least one 8-weight. I'd probably have one 10-weight. I'd have a pair of 12s and maybe one or two 16-weights. Uh, um, you know, you can get by with one of each, but I, I kind of like to have duplicates because you never know what's going to happen. I mean, I've fallen victim to ceiling fans. I've fallen victim to... Uh, you know uh, the uh, the doors on, on the salon of the boat. You know, just stupid stuff like that. If you've only got one rod, you know your primary rod is a 12 weight. You break that, then then what do you do? Um, so I, I like to to have a couple and and just try and figure out what the majority of my fishing is going to be and and you know kind of plan that way. But also have some lighter outfits to kind of throw some fun into it and and uh, give you some options with some other species. But Ted, you had described before a lot of the uh, took along with you. Now, a lot of them are pretty standard patterns and so forth. Did you try to to take any fly tying equipment down there, or was that? 
that possible? You know, we did. Uh, Michael Schwartz actually uh, is, I would have to say, one of the most revolutionary fly tires in, in the saltwater game. Um, and one of these kind of people that you never hear about but that are out there that are, are doing stuff uh, or doing things that, that other people aren't even thinking about. And we did. We took a lot of fly tying uh, material with us, and we had the chance to tie at night and, and kind of develop some flies. But, you know, most of the stuff that I was very, very fortunate with uh, Enrico Puglisi and, and uh, Fly H2O and Rainies to really have covered the whole gamut. So it wasn't that critical for me to be tying. Um, but for the you know some of the folks that didn't bring as much stuff that that uh, as I did, they were able to kind of duplicate some of the things that I had, and it's it's a a big part of it. You know, and that's one of the most rewarding things about fly fishing is to be able to sit down and and tie a fly and go out and and catch a nice fish on it. Um, and we were certainly able to do that. I've got uh, a question from Brendan Mason in Seattle, who's uh, apparently spent some time chasing dogtooths, and sounds like he didn't have a lot of luck. He got a, got follows and refusals, and he wonders if it's possibly that the fly wasn't either noisy or large enough, and he wonders if you saw any of that and how, how you'd convert those follows into hookups. We didn't have a problem with fish following and, and not eating, um, and I think that a good way to, or a good analogy um, for the dog tooth tuna when you're fishing for them, either with a flyer or with conventional gear, really, that is very similar to what I tell people when we're fishing on the flats for barracudas in the wintertime in the Florida Keys, is that you have to issue that fish a challenge. And you have to get inside that fish's head and make it think that it's not going to be able to catch and eat whatever it is you're throwing. So it's got to be big, and it's got to be moving fast. And it, it, this dog tooth tuna, I think, spend a lot of time. It's one of the things we were talking to the captains about down there. They spend a lot of time swimming around down around 70 or 80 feet, and they just kind of loaf along all day long. And then all of a sudden, one of the fish in the group see or the pack sees something that it wants to make a decision to go eat. And once that fish makes that rapid movement and comes up to check out whatever it is, um, it has decided it's going to eat. There's four or five other fish swimming around going, where's mine, where's mine, where's mine? So you've, you've got to work the fly aggressively. It's got to be big and it's got to be obnoxious. And uh, you got to make that fish think that it's not going to be able to eat it. And that's, that's that would trigger. be my number one tip. Yeah, that's, that's the trigger there. So you weren't doing any, any chumming of any kind. It was mainly teasing for the, for the dog. You know, we did do some chumming. I think if I went back, I would probably try more. The crews were not very receptive to it because of the shark factor, but uh, the few times that we did do it, you were able to to pick a couple of nice fish out without uh, without any kind of a shark problem. I'd like to go back and try a live bait chum, but they there doesn't seem to be a lot of small live baits there, and I, I think that life is pretty cruel on the Great Barrier Reef and out in, in the Coral Sea. And you know, if you stub your toe, something's going to eat you. <laughs> So it's uh, it's a hard place to be to be a live bait. That's for sure. When when you made a decision to to target other fish, uh, you probably went with different flies. Was that when you went more with the the half and halves or the clousers or or that sort of thing? And how how did you work them? Um, I'm 
pretty much varied the tree, varied the retrieve, um, tried to make it as erratic as possible. Um, and those were flies that we used for the trevallies, for the the uh, green jobfish, for the um, uh, red bass and stuff like that. But just a strip, strip, pause, strip, 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 pause. Um, you know, trying to to mix it up a little bit and make it look like something that was trying to trying to escape. Those were very very effective on the uh, the blue spotted trevallies, which I think you guys have a photo of. A very very beautiful beautiful fish. Now those were very, all very hard fighting. You were fishing off the reef for those types of fish. Uh, they yeah they were on the coral heads and uh, that was kind of that casting and some of that uh, thirty to. You know, 30 to 60 feet of water with sinking shooting heads. And how deep were you having to, to fish? Uh, you get the fly down, you know, 10 feet right on the edge of a coral head, and those fish will come up. If they're there, they'll come up from a, a, a pretty uh, good depth to, to eat the fly. Are there any unique fly patterns that uh, you found being used down there that you hadn't experienced with before? No, you know, the, the guys that we fished with... Uh, didn't really fly fish much, oh. so it was it was all kind of new to them. Um, but I do know that the crew on the wild turkey, uh, uh, Greg Greg uh, Sims, and his mate Ben Bright, or his captain Ben Bright, actually, um, they were pretty innovative and they were looking at what we were doing and, and kind of trying to tweak it and, and coming up with new new ideas. So I'm sure, actually, that if I get back there next year and, and get to fish with those guys, we're going to see some pretty neat stuff. Converts to the to the whippy rods. Oh yeah, we had uh, actually. I think everybody on the trip was uh, was pretty much converted. Um, Greg and Ben actually do quite a bit of barramundi fishing and uh, up in the uh, the Kimberly area. Uh, and uh, they were they were probably the most fly savvy guys I think on the trip. But uh, you see a huge huge uh, surge in popularity in Australia right now with uh, with fly fishing in salt water. So I think uh, probably when we go back, we'll you know these guys are going to be pretty well in tune with what we're doing. Well, were there any uh, techniques or strategies that you learned that you could apply back here in local waters in Florida or the? Well, no, there actually were some things that we took over there that, that worked pretty well. Um, I was having a very hard time. The, the, the dog tooth tunas were not eating as aggressively as, as they have in the past for Hal and, and, and the guys that had fished there before. And they're throwing these gigantic poppers on 18 and 20 weight fly rods. And it, i got to be honest with you, it hurts your arm after a while trying to do that. And you get a fish come up, blast the teaser, you scramble back there, get the rod, get the, the fly out there, finally get this thing going, you strip it once or twice, and the fish wouldn't eat. And very seldom in my fishing has a topwater lure ever been the most productive uh, bait or the, the most productive fly, you know, a surface pattern. is is Generally, you'll get good bites on it, but it's not the most effective way to hook fish. So after two or three times of doing this, I turned to the captain, Ben Bright, and I said, you know what, let's try something that I do in the Florida Keys. The next time we get a fish up here that it comes up and eats a bait, take the boat out of gear and let me throw a streamer back there and get the fly down 10 or 15 feet, and let's see what happens. So we trolled probably another couple hundred yards, had a fish up, 
put a fly back there, let the fly sink down, put it under my arm and did a striper strip and hooked about a probably a thirty five pound dog tooth tuna. Going, uh uh-huh, we might be onto something here. <laughs> and uh did it four or five more times, hooked four or five more fish and really started to key in on that that idea that, you know, the fish aren't as aggressive as they normally are. Let's change it up a little bit and let's send a fly down to them. And uh turned out time after time after time when these fish weren't coming up and eating the the, the uh, surface patterns that there were fish zipping around down below looking for something to eat and you could switch them over and convert them to uh, you know to the streamer and they, your hookups on streamers are, are it's a much higher percentage um, uh, hookup on a streamer than it is on a on a surface pattern and that's where I started talking to uh, to Ben Bright, the captain of the Wild Turkey, about it that night. And he said, you know, it just makes so much more sense to me. He said, when I'm barramundi fishing and I have guys that they get to fly in the zone only about 5% of the time. And that's the biggest challenge for me is to try and get them to to extend that window of opportunity where they're able to get a bite. And he said, that's what we did today, where... You get that that popper out there, and the fish doesn't want to eat it. All of a sudden, you're out of the game completely. He said, "Now you're doing this with a streamer and a sinking line, and you've made that window much much wider of where you're going to have the opportunity to get a bite from the fish." And that's something that I think people could do better in all types of fly fishing is is extending that window, you know, and figuring out how to get your fly in the bite zone. Um, for a much longer period of time, and that, that's something that I took away from that trip that I'll probably never forget. And that that seems pretty logical because you know even if you're fishing for freshwater trout or something, when you're when you're pulling a streamer, when when it takes the the fly, you you miss very few of those, uh, as opposed to for instance dry fly fishing or something where you again top water you miss a lot. I think that's more of a direct hit for the fish, an easier take, mm-hmm. isn't it, than, than on the surface where there's just... Oh, I think that, yeah, that's, so much and that's an on. absolutely uh, universal uh, uh, fly fishing uh, thing. It, look at, at streamer fishing for, for... If you're throwing streamers for trout, when they eat them, in my experience, they get hooked. Right. I mean, they slam them. If you're throwing, like, an articulated leech or the articulated egg-sucking leech or something like that, you get that that fly in that window, and that fish commits to eating it, and it's like eight times out of ten you're going to hook them. You know, uh, whereas usually if I have a fish come up on a dry fly, I usually rip it out of their face before they can close their lips around it. Yeah, yeah, we react to that. Yeah, somebody, uh, um, one of our guests, Kelly Gallup, who's a big streamer fishing up in um, or fisherman up in Montana. Uh, he made the point that very few times does he think a fish ever misses a take. Uh, and his point was it's, it's more our problem than the fish's problem because they make a living at, at <laughs> taking food in. And he, did, he, did, oh, he you know, doesn't figure they miss very many things. So it's usually he felt the fault of his when he missed a fish and not the fish's fault, as we so often say, oh, he missed it. Well, he didn't really miss it. He might have. He could have been just trying to stun it or something to that effect, and and not really taking it as well. But I thought that well, was that's what my friend Pat Stefanik out in the uh, Elk River in Colorado refers to as loft or lack of fishing talent, which I seem to suffer from. <laughs> we all do, don't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we're going to have to wind things up here. Is there is there any anything in final comments? Uh, 
Ted, you'd like to make about the trip or, or in general about fly fishing down there? Uh, I can't wait to go back, and I think that, you know, people in fly fishing have a dream trip, and uh, this definitely should be one of them. Um, Australia is someplace, even if not for the fishing, that I think everybody should try and get to at least once in their lives. I mean, it's just the most diverse, prosperous, environmental place on the planet. And uh, I, I highly endorse it. I'm, I'm a big fan of Australia, and I think people ought to get on Air New Zealand and go down there and try it out for themselves. What would you go back for? Uh, what would be your goal going back? What would you fish for? I would go back and do what we did in a heartbeat. I'd like to to go back. I don't think I could ever get enough of these dog-toothed tunas, um, but I would also like to go back and try these small black marlin for anywhere from, you know, 40 to about 120 pounds, and would also like to try and go back and catch a big bear on fly. You know, just a lot of opportunities there to do a lot of different things, and, and uh, I think you could go back once a year and do something different and never get tired of it. Sounds good. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, it's time to wrap things up. Uh, when we return, we'll be drawing for a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing in Salt Waters magazine and also two pairs of tickets to the ISC event. So stay tuned to see if you win. Attention, fly fishers. Are you aware of the proposed pebble mine project in southwest Alaska? This enormous open pit could generate as much as 3 billion tons in a seismic area with some of the most important trout and Pacific salmon fisheries in all of Alaska, or the world for that matter. The well-being of Lake Iliamna and the entire Bristol Bay area waters may be at stake. If you have not already, acquaint yourself with the concerns. You can make a difference and the ramifications reach far beyond fly fishing. Go to www.fedflyfishers.org slash conservation.php that's fedflyfishers.org slash conservation.php or www.tu.org slash bristol bay tu.org slash bristol bay or just google bristol bay mining for starters and if you know of other conservation issues please bring them to our attention at info at askaboutflyfishing.com in the future, we'll be presenting special editions on our website which deal with these topics. Get involved, be proactive, help protect our environment and the future of fly fishing. From our global events calendar tonight, we see that the Federation of Fly Fishers Florida Conclave will be held Saturday, January 26th, at the IGFA Museum in Dania, Florida. They have casting programs, a terrific lineup of speakers, and some great topics. Go to the Global Events Calendar. The link is on the bottom of each page on our website, and look under Florida for more information. And don't forget to remind your local clubs and fly shops to list their fly fishing-related happenings on the events calendar. We'll be highlighting one event from the calendar on each of our shows. Just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. Uh, you can find a link on our homepage to do this in the section on tonight's show that says, What did you think about this show? Just click on the link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. Well, now it's time to give away a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing Saltwaters, a premier fly fishing saltwater magazine, and two pairs of tickets to the ISC shows, the International Sportsman's Expositions. The winners of our drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. So if you didn't register for tonight's show, too late now, but make sure you do so for the next show. Uh, you don't want to miss out on some of the 
uh, chance at some of the incredible prizes that we have to offer. So if you're the lucky winner tonight, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with the information on, on how to receive your gift. So here it goes. We're going to first of all do a drawing for that one-year subscription to uh, Fly Fishing Salt Waters. And uh, here we go. I press the magic button, and it's Eric Dry in Colorado. Eric Dry, and he's in Colorado. Um, so Colorado's a long way from salt water, but, uh, <laughs> but we go down all the time. So the, um, this will give you a chance to brush up on your salt water techniques. So congratulations, Eric. And now we're going to draw for the ISE tickets. Um, this is a pair of tickets to get you into the show. Uh, the first pair is Mark Drilo, Mark Drulo um, in Arizona. And so there is an ISC event in Arizona. So, Mark, we hope you can make that. Works good. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the second winner is Timothy Schilling. Timothy Schilling. And Timothy Schilling is in uh, Colorado as well. So, uh, Timothy, there is a, uh, a show in the next couple weeks in Colorado, and we hope that you can attend that as well. So congratulations all. Yeah, congratulations. You'll enjoy, enjoy those. Well, Ted, uh, boy, we really appreciate you being with us tonight. Uh, it's uh, really great to have you share your experiences on this uh, trip uh, down under. Uh, I sure hope we can get you to... Uh, maybe take some time in the future to update us on some, something uh, else new and exciting that you're doing. On our next broadcast, we will on February 7th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, we'll interview Pat Dorsey. And our topic for the show will be fly fishing Colorado's South Platte River. Uh, Pat Dorsey is guided on the South Platte for more than 11 years and spends at least 200 days per year on that stream. So he knows the water intimately. Uh, join us to learn everything you need to know about fly fishing, one of the most challenging trout streams in the United States. We would like to thank the R.L. Winston Rod Company, the Western Canadian Fly Fishing Exposition, the International Sportsman's Expositions, and the Federation of Fly Fishers for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. And feel free to explore the other areas of our site, like the events calendar and the directories. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.